Welcome to No Holding Back with me, Susan Eskridge. Each week I'll have the privilege of talking with some of the biggest names from the world of media, politics, and law. Nothing is off the table. I'll be speaking my mind and encouraging my guests to do the same. Today I'm joined by one of the smartest people I know, one of the smartest sometimes Republicans, sometimes independents, sometimes just wildly smart Frank Luntz, who has been around the circle in politics for a long time and is just one of the, what can I say, smartest, wittiest, funniest, most informed political observers of our time. And I think one of the nicest people around. Frank, thanks so much for joining me and bringing your wit, your observation, your intelligence, and your good style to No Holding Back. I, uh, my good style, the shirt I'm wearing is GameStop. GameStop. What do we do, Frank? What's going on? I mean, really, this is the silliest time in politics, and you and I have been doing this for a long time, and it's never been sillier than right now. Yeah, but you know, I don't regard it as silly. I regard it as tragic. I used to regard it as disappointing, now I'm frustrating. Now I regard it as potentially the beginning of the end. That I, I believe, I truly believe, with my focus groups and my surveys and the interviews that I do, I truly believe that our democracy is in jeopardy. I think that the lack of trust in institutions all across the business, political, cultural, social spectrum has collapsed. And the people who I would normally depend on to bring it back, they themselves aren't trusted by the population. So I can't call it, I'm a language guy, as you know, yeah, you, you invented words. I mean, Frank, for people who weren't around, invented the whole idea of using language to communicate in politics and getting feedback whenever I talk. We've got to turn that down, Joel. Joel is listening to me twice, and once I'm good, twice I'm not nearly as good. Yeah, but Susan, we need feedback. We just don't need that kind of feedback. That, not that kind of feedback. But but really, Frank, I mean, this goes beyond language. This is really, I'm scared too. Look, I look at the courts and I look at the Supreme Court and people just don't give a damn about the Supreme Court anymore. And, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army to enforce its decisions. It depends on credibility and trust. And it has just lost that credibility and trust. You, you're a friend of Kevin McCarthy. I mean, people look at him right now and see the gutless wonder. I mean, what is Kevin McCarthy supposed to do right now? Tell well, me. It's, it's difficult when you got a four seat majority that could end up a three seat majority shortly. And there's a member of the Republican conference that fell out of a tree. So he's not there. And so that could end up being a two seat majority. This is what happens when we are a divided country. It's why stuff didn't get through the Senate over the last two years. So what should he do, Frank? You know, he's a friend of yours. He's somebody you presumably like, trust, respect, you know, who listens to you occasionally, more often than not, I hope, because you give wise counsel. What do you do? Well, it starts with the fact that he's a very good person, a very good human being. And you need that to survive in Washington right now so that you have the chance to talk to people and listen to people. Kevin's office is filled with individuals who publicly give him a hard time and privately there's still a connection. Second is that you have to be able to negotiate and it's pretty hard when the White House says no negotiation. When they lay out that kind of assertion 
when we have issues from Ukraine to the debt ceiling, and that our system is based on conversations, based on dialogue, and you shut it off, you got a problem. Third is that you have to accept that 85% of a good thing is still a good thing. And it doesn't make you a traitor. Uh, it doesn't make you a quizzling if you accept 85%, because again, that's part of what democracy is. And I think that if anyone can succeed in this environment, it actually is Kevin McCarthy. I'm not convinced he does, but I think he has the skills to do better than, than anyone who's held that position for the last 30 years or so. Where's the 85%, Frank? Is the 85% all on the Republican side or is the 85% to be found by getting some group that's partly Republican and partly Democrat that stands together? Yeah, it's the Problem Solvers Caucus, to be specific. The individuals that you should have on this podcast much more than me is Josh Gottheimer, Democratic Congressman from New Jersey, Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican Congressman from Pennsylvania. Every day they talk, every day they negotiate, every day they give a little so they can get a lot. And that's exactly what we need in Washington. We don't need the AOCs. I understand why she does what she does. We don't need the extremists on the Republican side who are prepared to shut Congress down. What we need are those who have principle, those who have policies, and those who are willing to work it out. And they do exist. They're just not as many as I wish. And they don't get rewarded, do they? I mean, you know, I've always thought that there should be more rewards for people who figure out how to get along than people who figure out how to fight. But in the world you and I come from, the world of, you know, screaming politicos and television and feel free to interrupt politics, all the attention goes to the people who scream at each other. It really does. And you don't get any attention if you're in the middle trying to negotiate a solution. Nobody wants you on their programs. Nobody wants to quote you. Nobody wants to have you write their columns. Nobody wants to stick a camera in your face. You're nobody. And I'd say that it's not necessarily right, left. And that's one of the problems. That is, do you want to find a solution? Do you want to get it done? The best example is immigration. The Democrats want to immediately institute the DREAM Act. The Republicans immediately want to secure the border, that you can do both of them at the same time and fix our legal immigration system. And to do all three of those, secure the border, initiate the DREAM Act, fix legal immigration to, to make illegal immigration more difficult and legal immigration easier, has almost 80% support. Right. I know. The only people who can't get it done are the people in Washington. But why isn't, see, this is what always has gotten to me. When I used to work at Fox, I always used to win debates by carving out that place in the middle where you could actually win. The majority of people would get very frustrated because you actually could win by carving that spot in the middle. But why doesn't Biden govern from there? That's what I don't understand. Why doesn't Biden grab the middle and shove it down the throats of, as I would say, of the majority on either side? Why not? Historians got to him right after his election, and they told him, unfortunately, that compromise and cooperation isn't the hallmark of successful, of really successful presidents, that the ones who made the biggest difference 
are ones that staked out a more extreme position and fought for it. Joe Biden ran as Harry Truman. He ended up governing as FDR or trying to, and his success, at least up until the last couple of months, was much more akin to Jimmy Carter. That Jimmy Carter didn't succeed. I mean, no, I was Jimmy Carter. That was not a success. His right. success in the last few months came as Harry Truman. And exactly. And and I don't think he understands that. And I think the people he surround himself with in the White House, I believe you'd agree, are much more ideological, much more political, much less statesmanlike. And they're trying to make a point rather than trying to make a difference. And we see the same thing on the Republican side as well. And in the end, I don't regard this as winning or losing. I, I, I never won a debate. I never lost a debate because debates are, are only the process that you use to get to making a meaningful, measurable impact for the people that you serve. So it's not a debate to me, just as it's not amusing to me. How do we establish a legitimate track record of results, of real results, in areas that we have to achieve? And the debt ceiling is the one I'm looking at right now. Republicans are complaining that Joe Biden won't negotiate. Joe Biden is saying he won't negotiate. Right. Both of them, both of them are wrong. Both are wrong. Biden refusing to listen to the people who were elected to the House and the Senate. There's no defense for that. On the Republican side, negotiation is only a process. What exactly do you want to negotiate? You have a responsibility. It's not just the conversation. It's what you put on the table. So I'm upset with both of them for their ineffective communication and their unwillingness to be serious at a time when seriousness is so required. So then what happens? I mean, there are so few voices like yours that you hear out there, to be perfectly honest, all right? If I turn on the television, I'm going to hear one set of voices on this side, and I'm going to hear one set of voices on the other side, and then I'm going to turn off the television, because that's all I hear. And there are so few voices that are going to say on both sides, you know, a pox on both your houses. Where do we turn to hear that other set of voices? I get a lot of my news from The Economist. I get a lot of my news. From- <laughs> yeah, Turn, get outside the country and you'll get some fair news. That's a Although good way to start. The person, but the individual, the James Bennett, he used to be the editorial page editor for the New right. York Times, writes the uh, Kentucky column, for Lex- uh, 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 Lexington column for, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip right there. Yeah, right there. For the magazine. And he's American. Uh, I get it from CNBC. They have to be right. They can't be ideological because people are making billion-dollar bets. Bets, and they want when money is at stake. You got to be honest. Yeah, and you got to be honest. You got to be candid. So that's the place where I get information. But in the end, I do sit down with senators and congressmen from both sides. I do encourage them, and I ask more questions than I answer because I'm trying to learn, understand the motivations, both of the American people that I poll and of the elected officials who are making the decisions. I don't think we ask enough questions in our society right now. I don't think we are seeking to learn. I think we're seeking to speak. We don't have a problem with dialogue. We have a problem with listening. (laughs) You're so right. You are so right. And when we listen, we don't really hear. We just start talking over people so much of the time. 
you know? I mean, so let me get back to just the concrete of it all. What, what, do you, what does Kevin McCarthy do with the George Santos? What does he do with a Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, what does he do with the extreme of this party when he's got the reality of a four-seat majority? Does he cave to these people? Does he put them on committees? I mean, what does he actually do? The same thing that Nancy Pelosi did because she too had a very tiny majority, tiny, it's the same thing as McCarthy. This is a mirror image of what happened two years earlier, but she didn't have the same problem that Kevin does. Democrats fall in line. Democrats don't tear down the system in the end. And Republicans, as part of their philosophy, are much more independent and much less susceptible to groupthink. And it's all part of how they're wired. These are not just ideological differences between the left and the right. It's not just setting up different priorities. There is actually a difference in how they are wired, which made it easier for Pelosi to, to govern, makes it much more difficult for Kevin. In the end, there's only so much you can do. And in the end, you just hope that people take a, a reasonable, sensible, responsible approach to these central issues. And you hope that, that they seek solutions more than they seek to make a political point. But why do you put George Santos on a committee? I mean, do you have to do that? Um, you, there's actually, when you have uh, this, even a distribution, people have to go on committees. My initial reaction about him was, get him out of there. Yeah. I gotta tell you, I don't like him. I don't like who he is. I don't like what he's done. I don't like his approach, but you know what? People lie. And lying is not a part of a constitutional requirement for a member of Congress. And I'm really careful, and I'll be curious because I'm going to ask you the question. Constitutionally, there is nothing that suggests that this gentleman should be removed. If he broke the law, he should be prosecuted. And if he's prosecuted, then there are rules to, to expel him from Congress. But until that happens, legally, it seems wrong. It does to, seem wrong, doesn't it? To refuse to seat someone no matter how abhorrent and reprehensible his behavior. Yeah, it seems like there should be a way that the, that the body, that the House, and, and this is really a parliamentary question, has some authority over its membership, and that as a body, it has some right to police the ethics of its membership. And you would think that the House Ethics Committee would have some jurisdiction here and have some authority, but I'm not a House parliamentarian. I don't know. They sent CNN sent a crew to a high school in his district, and it was really pretty pitiful, Frank, because you and I both care about what kids think about politics and democracy and civics. And they had a group of these high school honors students. Some of them were Republicans and some of them were Democrats. And they're asking these kids, you know, what do you think of George Santos? And to a kid, the, the students were saying, of course, you know, that he should resign. And, you know, it's just awful. I mean, you you look at these kids, and when I was their age, I actually respected politicians and wanted to go into politics and things like that. And these kids are just looking at it like we were a bunch of fools, and they're right. And it's just a disgrace. And, you know, I saw you tweeted out a list of rankings of, you know, what people think of politicians right down there with used car salesmen and I don't know who else. I mean, it's the lowest rank you can possibly have. And that's where politicians rightly belong right now. And it's, I think, a real tragedy in our democracy. 
And when Joe Biden gets out there and says democracy is in despair, I think it's a true message, but I'm not sure the messenger has much credibility right now. Well, he makes the comment that he has no regrets. He's got documents. He's yelling at Donald Trump, who clearly behaves so badly, and I'm waiting to see whether he gets indicted or not. Yeah. But those documents should not have been Mar-a-Lago, and, and Biden had every right to say to him, what the hell are you doing? Well, we can do the same thing to Joe Biden. And then he asserts he has no regrets. We have to hold people to a standard, regardless of whether they are Republican or Democrat. And I was very disappointed in several Democratic senators. And in this case, I know you say no holding back. I'm going to hold back because I want them to come speak to my class. But there are two Democratic senators. I admit it. There are two Democratic senators who were trying to dismiss three times now. He's had documents. No regrets? Come on. Just as Republicans have to look at Santos and say, dude, you're a Republican, but you don't belong here. Democrats have to look to their president and say, dude, what the hell are you doing with documents that go back as far as when you were a United States senator? This is a problem. I know the phrase when I was a kid, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. Well, I don't hear that phrase anymore because we're so tribal and so divisive that we now justify what others do if they do it from our tribe. And we condemn others, even if they do well, if it's done from the other tribe. And Susan, we gotta stop that. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I understand the claim that Trump fought the investigators when they came calling and Biden has welcomed the investigators when they came calling. Okay, fine, maybe. But the investigators have come calling on both of them, and they found documents in both cases. And in both cases, we need an apology. And some of this line drawing is a little bit ridiculous. I don't know. That's just how it looks to me. I'm not sure about an apology I did, or even acknowledgement. What are we going to no. do to make this never happens again? I am less, and this is how I've changed over the last 20 years, 30 years from when I first met you. I am so much less about punishment, and so much more about accountability. I'm so much less about placing blame and so much more about prevention. So these things never happen again. Speaking of never happening again, let me ask you before we run out of time about two words, Donald Trump. What is the Republican Party going to do about Donald Trump? Well, I don't know if you know this, but I was at the White House Christmas party. It was the last official Trump event in 2020. And after a couple hours of being really afraid to go up to him, I finally had the guts to walk up and ask him, what does the J and Donald J. Trump stand for? Suji, you know what he told me? Genius. I think that says it all. Obviously, that's a joke. Uh, the Republican Party is going to have to make a decision whether they're looking backward or forward whether they want to go through all these controversies again and again and again. They have to look at the results of the 2022 election, which was not a success. They lost seats in the Senate. They only gained a few seats in the House, although they did gain in the House. That the candidates that Trump supported in contested primaries, almost all of them lost in the Senate races. That what gave birth to him in 2016 does not exist in 2024. And they have to decide if they want to win with someone who's appealing 
to a greater percentage of people they want to lose with Donald Trump. I don't know what they're going to decide. I do know that in the end, the character of the individual is as important as where they stand. And that we have to once again, promote good character of good people. And it really does matter. The president is a role model and how he treats his opponents tells you something about about who he is or she is as a person. And I really hope we take this into consideration as people start to choose their candidates in 2024. And Susan, before you run out of time, I, I know this is gonna be shared and this is the reason why I said yes to you because I've stopped doing most podcasts. I absolutely say no, because it's very time consuming. But I did this because you were involved in my life when I was a partisan Republican and you were a partisan Democrat. And you remember how you spoke to me on the passing of my dad. I do. And you actually got intimately involved when I was grieving. And you taught me about the grieving process in a way that changed how I looked at life and got me through this. A partisan Democrat helped out you and Mary Madeline, the two of you, helped me so much. And I never forgot that. And it was the two of you who put me on a road to a much less partisan and a much more um, empathetic life. And I am grateful every single day. And I want your listeners to know that you're still, I believe you're still a loyal Democrat, but you have a heart as big as the state you're from and a character that any child, any parent should want their child to adopt. And that makes you special. And I celebrate you every single day because you helped me get to where I am today. Well, Frank, I can't tell you how much that means that you said that. And I remember well when your dad passed and that period you went through. And I've always believed in the kind of relationship between Republicans and Democrats that Tip O'Neill used to talk about, where we fight all day and at the end of the day we reach out because we're not all Qaeda. We're in this business together because we believe in democracy and we believe in America and we believe in patriotism and love of country. I used to say to Roger Ailes, when we get in the trench, we'll get in the trench together because we'll be fighting on the same side for our country. And I've always felt that way about you. And so it really is a pleasure to welcome you to this podcast and to thank you for being with me and to thank you for fighting for our country. I appreciate that. And you're the best. You've been listening to No Holding Back with me, Susan Estrich. Tweet us at No Holding Back FM. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share the link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, noholdingback.fm. This podcast was produced by Podcast Partners. You can find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time on No Holding Back. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.